Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well. It's Steph. Hello, back to the YouTubers. Uh, this is a live uh, video. <laughs> live. Not quite live, but lively. Let's go with that, shall we? And uh, I just wanted to say hi, and I'm going to YouTube this baby because uh, there was such a high degree of interest in the topics of theology that were being discussed on Sunday's 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time Free Domain Radio call-in show. There's a little plug. And we had like 50 people in at a time, which was uh, quite, uh, quite a few. So I assume that there's a great deal of interest out there. And as an ardent capitalist, I am a slave to the market. Whatever you people say is how it's going to be. I am a, uh, I am as a, a liquid in the container of your needs. <laughs> so I'm going to, um, I wanted to broadcast this, and I've also noticed that the occasional YouTube videos that I still post do get quite a number of hits. So um, at least not not relative to a you know a Oriental girl sticking a pencil up her nose or anything, but relative to say a for sale sign. Uh, I have to go into the traffic. Yay! Like a half of a zipper. I love it. People give you like 1.001 car length to uh, to come in while they're screaming along in the merge lane. It's all too beautiful. All right, so uh, given the level of interest that is floating around in the world of uh, theology or interest in sort of uh, theology, one of the questions that was asked at the end of the last show was if I sort of had any thoughts. <laughs> Actually, I don't think the question was, do I have any thoughts? I think that's pretty much a given by now, right or wrong. But uh, do uh, would I share my thoughts on the uh, history of religion? Now, I mean, I've, I've had some esoteric out there, make it up as you go along kind of podcast before, but nothing quite compares to the question of the history of religion, since, of course, there's, there are very few records. And since, uh, as we mentioned uh, two podcasts ago, history is written by the victors. These victor guys, uh, whoever they are, they just win a hell of a lot. Oh, I'm so sorry about that joke. Oh, I had a 50-50 in my mind. Should I go for it or not? Anyway, so... Um, uh, and so, of course, the, since, since the religions who have won are the ones who have left the records behind of their, of, their vanquish, of their conquering of other religions, and they usually leave the sword out and put the spirit back in. So we don't have any really legitimate or valuable, at least not that I've ever read, and I spent a fair amount of time on this in grad school. I haven't seen any um, really good uh, or valid um, history uh, that, uh, of religion that is not... Uh, either sort of made up in the way that I'm talking about, where you just sort of work with logical inferences and with human nature as it presents itself now and assume that human nature hasn't changed radically over history. But um, uh, so, you know, with all caveats, this is more of a fairy tale, um, which is kind of appropriate in a way. But it's more of a fairy tale with, uh, I would say, some reasoned statements about human nature than it is any kind of logical or purely historical examination because those things are impossible. All right, to start, well, one of, the, um, one of the functions of the human mind that is really endlessly fascinating, to me at least, is our ability to deny sensual stimuli. That really is, when you sort of mull it, it is, it is to me, the greatest strength and greatest weakness of the species. It's what's got us out of the caves and what might end, us, end up pounding us into some sort of radioactive ash, unlikely, but 
it is going to be the downfall as it was the rise of the species. And where there is great power uh, comes great responsibility, of course. And so when we start to look at what is possible for the human mind in terms of the rejecting of empirical and sensual reality, we see that when we go askew in this area, you know, grave horrors result. So it, it is a, it's the most powerful thing that we can do with our minds is to reject sensual stimuli. So, I mean, to take a silly example, an amoeba has no capacity to reject uh, sensual stimuli. I mean, you, uh, you put something around it that it doesn't like, it retracts every single time with like almost no learning curve, maybe a very minor one. Moving up the food chain, we do, of course, get the chickens with the pellets. And, you know, like if you, if you peck the button, you get a pellet of food and so on. And they will learn that kind of stuff. But they still don't have any capacity to reject uh, sensual stimuli if you, uh, in a sort of very fundamental way. If you look at something like a goldfish, you can feed a goldfish and it will keep eating until it dies. So it doesn't have any capacity to reject the sensual requirement or the sensual desire to um, uh, to eat. And it's pleasurable eating, and whether it dies or not, it doesn't matter. So uh, in the chimpanzees, of course, uh, there's a, a stronger learning curve and so on. But a chimpanzee, at least not anything that I've ever read about, not that I'm an expert in this area, as in most areas, <laughs> but I've never read of a chimpanzee. Uh, you know, they can assemble stuff to get a banana. They can, uh, maybe there's some, some debate about this rudimentary language thing, who knows, but um, this, uh, they, they don't, uh, they're not able to uh, reject their senses uh, and find uh, a, um, another route to, to solve a problem in the scientific method way, right? So a human being looks at the world and says, the world looks flat, but can reason uh, his or her way into understanding that the world is round, and similarly, I and mean, I've used this example, they just, you know, it's the ones that pop into mind. Uh, we can look at uh, a bunch of stars and see that most of them, uh, it looks, of course, like they're wheeling around the Earth at a fixed distance with different light, uh, different brightnesses. So that's where you get the original idea that came out of medieval scholasticism and the Ptolemaic system of astronomy that uh, the world, uh, actually, sorry, this is, this is when Ptolemaic astronomy was not in vogue, but there was a general idea that the sky above at night was a bowl of stars, right? So far out there, uh, far, I think it was certainly out beyond the planets because they'd figured out the planets and retrograde motion and so on at this point, though had a bad explanation for it. But there was like a, it was like a bowl. It was like an inverted bowl of, of black material with holes poked through it, which through which the light of heaven shone. It was all that kind of stuff, right? But um, uh, so I don't think a chimpanzee ever needs to come up with explanations as to what the stars are and so on. And that's I mean, that's what I mean by sort of uh, looking at sensual evidence and uh, rejecting the sensual evidence that is immediate and direct. Right. So if you look up uh, human beings uh, that, we, that we do uh, that we know of are the only uh, species that wonders, you know, what the stars are and, and what they're there for and so on. And. We do that, in a sense, by uh, wondering what is over and above and beyond sensual experience. What is the causality of sensual experience? What is behind sensual experience? The mere tickling of our eyeballs with the uh, light waves or particles or whatever the hell they are that uh, come the, you know, thousands or hundreds of light years from the stars, 
uh, that would be a mere uh, you know electrical or biochemical response from the optic nerve to the brain and every other species just looks up and says lights and then goes back to are the lights threatening no can I eat them no then I'm going to go back to what I'm doing but uh, human beings want to go beyond a sensual experience to find the causality of things and so along with that if, if sensual experience if sort of just looking at the world and getting stimulated was all that you needed for knowledge then of course uh, we wouldn't need language and uh, and uh, we wouldn't need uh, books uh, we wouldn't need conversation we wouldn't need learning and we'd be stuck in a sort of cyclical every generation learns exactly what the previous generation was able to learn with a small bit of teaching from elders and that's about it we'd be stuck with instinct and that which could be learned in a single generation but of course the great thing with human knowledge is that what it doubles every 18 months or so was that Moore's law <laughs> something like that but uh, human knowledge of course can be built brick by brick to create a very high wall and uh, human beings uh, who took many generations to find out the world was round can now be told that in about five seconds and assuming that they accept it they can uh, continue uh, on to learn the next thing so uh, human beings do have the ability uh, they have the desire uh, we have the desire to go behind the senses to find out the causality uh, that is uh, at the root or behind or or the sort of first cause of our um, uh, of our uh, sensual stimuli and we also have the capacity to reject that and these two things are very are very interrelated right so we can say uh, why, why are the stars there and we can also say the world looks flat but it's actually round and we can also say that the Sun and the moon look the same size but they're not and we can also distinguish between the um, uh, the planets which move more rapidly and the stars which move less rapidly and so we can do all of these kinds of things uh, which seems to be pretty unique to our species at least uh, so far uh, that have been discovered in this world and uh, maybe dolphins if they could see the stars would be astronomers too I don't know but um, so that these sort of two basic things that we wish to know the causality behind the the world's uh, happenings and that we are able to reject the evidence of our senses and to go beyond right so I can imagine that uh, certain species that live in the desert who if they were subject to the same kind of mirage illusion that human beings are subject to might say ooh water and keep chasing it and then go ooh water and keep chasing it but a human being uh, does have the capacity to reject uh, sensual stimuli and not only I mean, of course animals do as well I mean if you if the chicken uh, if you stop giving pellets when the chicken pecks the uh, uh, the pellet button uh, then um, you end up uh, with the chicken not pecking the pellet button <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a tongue teaser, doesn't it? But um, uh, so uh, human beings have the capacity to reject the stimuli and a desire to understand what's behind the world, the world's events or the world's happening, to go beyond sensual stimuli and with the capacity to reject some, uh, sensual stimuli. And, uh, of course, and I know that people are going to write to me and say this is not unique to human beings. If you look at a cat and play it a, a steady tone, after a while the cat's uh, auditory canal will stop transmitting the tone to the brain and all that. Yes, absolutely. There is an adaptive kind of, uh, um, uh, there is an adaptive kind of mechanism in uh, almost all neurological uh, systems, which is to minimize unnecessary or irrelevant stimuli, right? So... Uh, if you've ever been uh, working hard on something, even if you have an intermittent sound like somebody drilling into concrete outside your window, after a while you'll simply stop hearing it if you're really concentrated. So 
uh, sure, the mind does have an, a natural and an uh, autonom autonomic methodology for minimizing unwanted stimuli because, of course, you, you want to hear the lion's roar, not the rustle of the grass, right? <laughs> or I guess, actually, that would probably be the reverse. By the time you hear the lion's roar, it's too late. You want to hear the rustle of the grass. You don't want to hear the babbling of the brook, you know, so the uh, just from a sort of a filtering out the unwanted stimuli and when, of course, that fa facility or faculty is not present, uh, bad things happen to people because they can't uh, screen out. That's sort of the autism thing, right? Everything has the same priority when it comes to uh, the functioning of the mind. So there is, uh, and for human beings, there are questions long before there's a methodology for answers, right? And this sort of two facts are interrelated. So a human being wants to know where the stars came from and why they shine and, and why there's night and why there's day and so on and so on and so on. Uh, and these questions will arise long before there's any methodology for answering them, right? So uh, the, why are we here? Uh, sorry, why are there stars came around a long time before uh, calculus and uh, and higher mathematics and astronomy and uh, I mean in the sense that you actually had telescopes and and so on so the questions arose long before there were answers and human beings whenever you have a question right whenever you have a question you have one of two methodologies and the uh, the sort of rational philosophy of market anarchism is really at this very early stage right which is why I'm saying we need to let go of everything that came before because we're, alone, we're only going to be muddying the waters by hanging on to that which came before and trying to build a bridge from error to truth. You really can't. So when, uh, uh, when human beings have a question, they uh, face one of two, uh, two, uh, two ways of resolving that question or of solving the question. Tone of two methodologies. The first is that they can accept that they don't know and they can work to uh, in tiny increments with the knowledge that they will never know, very likely never know in their lifetime, but that they'll be adding something useful for the next generation to build on and so on. A very patient, rational, empirical methodology for determining what is true and what is false. They can sort of approach that, uh, and uh, that is a, uh, uh, one, one methodology for solving, uh, solving problems, right? So... Uh, uh, and the second, uh, the second is that the scientist is always in competition with the storyteller. The scientist is always in competition with the storyteller. And the storyteller, also known as the propagandist, but we we'll, won't be that cruel. We'll just call him the storyteller for now. The storyteller will provide an instant and enjoyable answer to the question. So... For instance, uh, in ancient uh, Greece, they were working out and had figured out not only that the world was round, but by sticking stakes into the ground and looking at the shadows at different places, I think in Alexander's empire, they had also figured out that uh, they knew its circumference, and they were pretty accurate within a couple of percent. So that's sort of one answer, right? Uh, what is the world? Well, the world is round, and the world is this size, right? So that's sort of one answer, but it takes a lot of patience, and it takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of um, not listening to people who've come before, but rather thinking for yourself. And it takes a lot of extrapolation from personal experience to universals to be able to make that leap, right? So, 
when you are hungry, you don't just make up some food in your mind. I mean, I guess you do, but if you can't get any, but it's not going to make you any any better. I remember reading some, and if anybody remembers this, uh, there were, I remember reading some story when I was a kid where the kid said to the mom, uh, they were very poor, and uh, he said, uh, Mommy, I'm hungry. And she said, Well, eat a hungry. And the kid was very was very frustrated, of course, because there was no such thing as a hungry. But if anyone remembers that story, I've uh, always been curious what uh, uh, where that came from. I was very young when I read it. so. But you don't just sort of make up food. When you need some money, you don't just sort of make up some money. I mean, unless you're the government. But you actually will sort of go through a, a sort of methodology, of course, in effect, and say, well, I'm hungry, so I've got to go to the store. I've got to get some food. I've got to grow some food for next year. Uh, I've got to, you know, do this kind of stuff, so I'm not hungry as hungry again. So you go through a sort of strict methodology. And if your mom says, to, if you say I'm hungry and your mom says eat a hungry, you don't starve to death going, hmm, that was the best hungry I've ever had, right? So it, when it comes to sort of bodily needs and so on, what your parents tell you doesn't really mean anything, so why would it mean anything with the rest of empirical reality, right? I mean, it, so there's a lot of work and it's laborious and it's 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 painful and it can be emotionally very difficult because you're rejecting all of the nonsense that you were told before and the moment that you tell people or talk to people that what they've been told before is nonsense they get hostile and and you get uh, in the ire of the authorities as scientists throughout history have felt uh, now that they've been bought by the authorities <laughs> they're a little less worried of course when scientists get bought by the authorities the rest of us get a whole lot more worried but um, so this scientific approach is you know, slow, laborious, painful, difficult, and all that kind of stuff. The only plus is that it actually happens to get you closer to the truth if you apply it consistently. Uh, on the other hand, though, you have the storyteller, right? And the storyteller is, um, uh, is the guy who's, you know, he's entertaining and he's charming and he's, uh, he's engaging and uh, often he's got the right look like that pastor who bought the crystal meth from the male prostitute recently. He had that right wholesome white bread Christian look. I mean, it's a, you know, 99% of bullshit is aesthetics, right? So uh, so you have somebody who's charming and pleasant and certain, right? And certain. And this is what people are, they, they gravitate towards certainty because, uh, you know, you kind of have to rely on experts, right? So for most people, on the one hand, you have this scientist dude saying, well, I don't know, uh, it's complicated, and the best that I can do is spend the years trying to figure out whether or not the world is likely round. Right? Just because you measure a curvature doesn't mean that it's not banana-shaped or something like that. But that it's likely round and that conforms with the rest of the round objects we see in the sky and so on. Oh, that was the other thing. The shadow of the Earth slicing across the moon during a lunar eclipse was round as well. That was another clue. But you've got this one guy who's saying that knowledge is going to be slow and laborious and challenging, but it will, of course, be deeply satisfying and we actually will be conforming our concepts with the reality of uh, how matter behaves and, and energy behaves, so that's, that's good. And so you've got this guy. Now, on the other side, you've got this, this charlatan, charming, frightening, whoever, like whatever they're using, whether they're frightening children or charming adults. Um, and there's a lot of uh, seduction as well in, um, uh, in religion for women, right? Because, I mean, the, they know, the religious people know they have to get a hold of women. It's one thing that libertarians don't... Uh, don't I think get quite as much that there's a it's all fine to talk to sort of 45 year old men but uh, if you really want to uh, uh, if you really want to change the world you have to talk to the women because the women are the ones who give the first instruction on the world to the uh, to the children and mostly 
and uh, that uh, first impressions can be fairly long-lasting. So that's one of the reasons why I've dragged Christina in, in and uh, we talk about uh, relationship issues and so on. Uh, to be broadly uh, stereotypical, uh, there is uh, a great deal of value in that for women. So. Uh, and men. Uh, and, you know, kudos to the sensitivity of the men and the rationality of the women. There, A lot of them are blowing away my stereotypes. But So on the one hand, you've got this guy, scientist guy, who says it's going to be difficult and it's going to be horrible and it's going to be challenging and you're going to be, and people are going to dislike you, right, because you're questioning um, the, the sort of social norms. And every scientific methodology has an impact on society. I mean, you can't have a scientific methodology without that scientific methodology uh, proving that religion is false, that there's no such thing as countries, that they're that leadership is nonsense uh, and that uh, the violence is bad. Because, I mean, there's an implicit thing in the scientific method that you recognize no authority but the senses and reproducibility and rationality, and you don't use violence to resolve disputes and, and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, and, of course, you say that things that don't show up in the senses and don't conform to reason aren't valid, and uh, the countries don't show up in the senses and sure, surely don't conform to reason. So everything that occurs within the scientific method has an implicit criticism of very many social institutions. And so that's on the one hand. On the other side, you've got, you know, Joe Charming, storyteller guy, who says, uh, you know, the world was created uh, with a bowel movement from the great intestine, or, you know, the world was created uh, in six days uh, with uh, from God, although there was no such thing as days at the time. And, uh, and there was nothing, and God created light. And uh, there was still nothing, but you could see it, all right? <laughs> all this kind of stuff. And uh, people sort of look between these two people, right? The, the, the scientist and the storyteller, and they say, huh, which, uh, which should we go with, right? Which is uh, more pleasant and, you know. And the scientist says that your life has no meaning uh, that is external to yourself, right? The scientist says that you have no meaning that is external to yourself. And the philosopher, who's, who's rational, certainly does, and there's no... There's no puppet strings out there giving us meaning in the world. And uh, the, but the storyteller will say, you know, you are part of a great cosmic drama and this, this deity uh, is totally obsessed with you and, 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 and loves you and cares about you and, and so on. And, and also, you know, when your beloved ones die, you'll join them in another realm. And, you know, so there's, there's basically he's like a, he's a pusher, right? I mean, so this is exactly like a drug pusher and it gets you hooked with uh, easy highs and then you're his slave, right? I mean, that's, that's, there's a downside to the storyteller, folks, right? I mean, of course, the storyteller that we most hear from these days is the one in the West, is the one sort of political and democratic and voting and freedom and so on. That's the storyteller, as I was talking about with the Mark Stein uh, article uh, uh, about a week and a half ago. Actually, almost two. It was Sunday, two Sundays ago. But, um, yeah, there's a price, right? Because once you believe the storyteller, then you become addicted to the story. I mean, this is one of the things, especially with, because the story from the religious standpoint involves meaning and so on. So, uh, human beings have questions. This, these just arise from our nature, right? I mean, I don't know what the cause of the questions are, but I can certainly trace the effect in a logical manner that people have questions and they want answers, right? And they, they feel uncomfortable without having answers. And I don't know whether people feel uncomfortable without having answers because of conditioning or because of our nature. I don't know. I would assume that if you have an answer that you, if you have a question that you want answered, you're going to feel less good not having an answer than having an answer, right? And any want that is satisfied feels better than a want that is unsatisfied. But answers are very hard to come by. Certainly, it was like 25 years of thinking for me to come up with anything useful. Uh, 20, 24, 20, 23. So uh, answers are very hard to come by, and they take a lot of rigor and a lot of emotional roller coastering and a lot of 
Uh, they have very personal effects, as I've sort of always talked about in this show. So if the storyteller gets to children, right, then the children are almost universally doomed, right? So the scientist is going to have a tougher time getting to children because the children keep asking questions, right? The why, 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 why? Well, why is the sky blue? Well, why does light do this? Well, why is there gravity? And blah, 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 blah. Now, the answer God's will uh, for many children, of course, is going to conform nicely with what they experience in their families, which is that they do what they're told because their parents will it, not because there's any rational answer, but just because it's what your parents say to do, so do it. It's what your teacher says to do, so do it. It's what the priest says to do, so do it. So hearing God's will has an, a ghastly kind of resonance with children. And, it, and, and of course, when it's spoken angrily, then they will simply recognize that their, sort of, um, their health is threatened through the possible withdrawal of parental affection, and lo and behold, they uh, suddenly find themselves uh, not, uh, not asking questions anymore. Now, that, uh, that whole process of storytelling, and, and please don't think this is in the past, and please don't think that this is in the past or even not uh, around you at the moment if you're not religious, right? I mean, the storytelling that goes on in the American empire around the virtue and good guys and bad guys and freedom and democracy and liberty, liberty and the, the virtue of the, um, of the government and the virtue of the cops and the virtue of the, uh, of the army. And I mean, you could just go on and on, and Lord knows I have. But please understand that you're in as great a fairy tale as uh, anybody else. And the fairy tale, even if you've gotten rid of all the political illusions, the fairy tale that you have is probably still going to be about your family and your obligations to them and your need to take care of them and your need not to upset them and, and so on, right? So you're embedded, we're all embedded in these fantasies, you know, like flies in amber with a tiny little straw that gets through to reality, that gets us to work and gets us fed and so on. But, you know, we sit uh, in this uh, vile, uh, creepy bath of uh, a fantasy uh, pretty much our whole lives. And it's hell to get out. I mean, it's hell to wake up. Uh, it's not so much hell personally, uh, although that's certainly not an insignificant aspect, but it sure is hell socially, right? Because you wake up and everybody gets angry at you. It's just inevitable and tries to manipulate you and puts you back to sleep. It really is, uh, you know, The Matrix was, uh, was a very good fairy tale in that sense. So this uh, issue then occurs that people will gravitate towards the uh, manipulator or the storyteller rather than towards the scientist. And that's also because, I mean, it's not just because people are bad, but there is always the problem of the bell curve distribution of intelligence across the species, right? So there are many more storytellers than scientists, I mean, in the past, right? Uh, and when there was no profession, for instance, you can make money being a storyteller, right? So if you're in a tribe, you can make money as the witch doctor, right? You can dance around and put hoops in your nose and, and pretend to cure and heal people and, and hear enemy guys come in and all that kind of nonsense. You can do all of that. And people will bring you food, right? Uh, infertile women will bring you food to do a dance to increase their fertility and all this kind of stuff, right? So, so all of that uh, will occur, and you can actually make a living at it. But if you're in a tribe, you can't make a living as a scientist because you're not actually providing anyone any tangible benefit. That's a multi-generational situation. It takes a lot of patience. And that's not usually um, uh, part of the project, right? <laughs> Because they've got an easy answer on one side, and they're happy for it. It gives them meaning and drama and, and makes sense of the world in a weird kind of way. And on the other hand, you've got somebody who just keeps asking irritating questions. And, of course, the witch doctor is not going to be happy with the scientist coming along saying, look, you're just, I mean, this is livelihood, right? What's that old line from uh, um, 
risky business, you know, in a recession, never fuck with another man's income, right? Well, of course, in history, it was always a recession, a depression, in fact. And the witch doctors, uh, the storytellers are not that happy with the scientists coming along and saying, I don't think we've answered these questions, and so on. And, uh, of course, people uh, are short of time. They've got other things to do. They're not professional philosophers or storytellers. So all this sort of combines to create a situation where there is a natural gravitational pull towards storytelling rather than science. And that uh, has something to do uh, with the history of religion for sure. Now, it's not the whole truth because there's a lot of misery and contradictions that are sort of bred to the bone uh, within this uh, realm of uh, storytelling versus science, right? Because people have to end up being split. They do some things rationally and empirically, like grow their crops, right? It's okay to have the witch doctor for when you have things that you can't answer or can't fix, but uh, it's quite another. You don't sit there all in a circle in your tribal village saying, um, we're, we're going to just pray for crops, to, for food to rain from the sky, right? So there's this very great split, which, you know, causes a lot of misery and unhappiness, uh, just as me not having my coffee sip does. One's a moment. Uh, oh, that's nice. Right, speaking of being addicted. Um, so that uh, is one of the, uh, one of the problems that, that occurs, that there's a, there's a split and people give up their power. And, of course, the other thing that happens is when you, as I've talked about before, when you create an external agency like a god or something who is uh, sitting up there in the sky and organizing everything in Earth, then what that does is it tends to massively increase the power of the rulers, right? And that's a very bad thing for everyone as a whole because then you get this horrible symbiotic-parasitic relationship, symbiotic with each other, parasitic on the rest of the tribe between the rulers and the priests, right, which we've talked about before. I don't think there's any real need to go into it now. So there is this gravitational pull towards these answers, right? And uh, you can see the, uh, the complexities that come out of this is pretty funny, right? So there's, I think it's in Hinduism or something where it's like the world sits on an elephant, the elephant sits on something else, the, and the, 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 that something else stands on a turtle, right? And, of course, the classic question is, well, what's, what's underneath the turtle? Right, and that the priest, you know, there's an actual priest who would say, "No, it's turtles all the way down," <laughs> which of course is kind of funny, right? It's how we deal with the problem that we talked about in Pearl Harbor and patriotism with, uh, imp oh, sorry, with agnosticism, infinite regression, uh, or an acceptance of infinity. So there is lots of problems, and it does. You get easy answers, but it stagnates you, right? So when you make up an answer you get sort of an instant relief from the discomfort of questions, but it totally stagnates you, right? You can see this sort of 2,000 years of Chinese civilization and no progress at all. The, the, the gross uh, national product at the end of the 2,000-year period was pretty much the same as it was at the beginning. Um, so when you accept easy uh, and silly answers for things, you gain an immediate relief, but you, uh, you completely stagnate yourself. And as, as a society, which of course doesn't exist, this makes no sense. But for each individual, the discomfort of going against prevailing opinion, even if you're not actually killed for it, which most times you were, the, dis the emotional discomfort of going against prevailing opinion for the sake of putting knowledge down, which will probably be burned and defamed as heretical when you die or while you're alive, and even if somebody else picks it up, uh, it's still going to be baby steps towards a, a, a marathon. Um, you know, the individual incentive to rock the boat is uh, minimal, and the danger and negative, right? so just from a pure cost-benefit analysis, 
there's really no point, right? So I posted something on the board about a um, UCLA student getting tasered because he wore a hat. And uh, people are like, oh, man, we should have. Some, I can't believe all these st- uh, students stood around and intervened. And it's like, well, uh, they didn't intervene. Well, of, of course they didn't intervene. Why, why would they? Who would? I mean, what? I wouldn't. The crazy thing to do that would be, right? You could get shot. Uh, you uh, certainly will be uh, arrested for assaulting an officer and get a couple of years in prison in the rape rooms. And uh, uh, you'll have it on your resume. You'll be a felon. You'll never get a decent job. I mean, uh, forget it. Forget about it. I mean, what's the point? It's not going to change anything. Right? The thing that you change the world with ideas, not with, you know, thumping cops, right? That's why I'm still on this side of the bar. <laughs> Right, whether it's uh, justification or uh, an intelligent way of doing things, uh, we don't know. But um, this uh, uh, the, the cost-benefit analysis for rejecting the stories and going for science is really a pretty. Uh, uh, it's a pretty tough calc to make, right? And and nobody really makes it. Uh, and the only time that it really did occur, of course, was when uh, you know millions of people were getting slaughtered in religious wars, and the death count for religious wars. We're just getting close to a billion. Then, you know, uh, things began to shift a little, and the cost-benefit uh, began to change a little. And people began to say, okay, well, maybe uh, science, uh, maybe we'll listen to these science guys we've been killing for the last 2,000 years and see uh, maybe their approach is going to be a little better, right? I mean, people don't, uh, societies generally don't change until they hit rock bottom. And so I don't assume that our ideas here are going to, you know, initiate change. But what they will do is they will help manage change, right? So change is good but you need to know how to change for the better and of course if people imagine or believe that uh, our society is going to mess up because of freedom then it's not like additional freedom is going to help right but uh, so this sort of conflict between the scientist and the storyteller is um, is very central and uh, the earlier that the storyteller gets a hold of the children the easier it is to 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 get them to swallow all of this nonsense right especially when you put things like hell and so on in there so you know, people do have a natural desire for um, for answers, and they also have the capacity to reject the senses, which is our greatest strength, as I said, and our greatest weakness. In our greatest strength, it allows us to say that the world is round and not flat, despite the fact that it really, really looks flat. I mean, there's no mountain high enough, maybe the top of Everest, but there's no mountain high enough that really makes it look round. It's not like a plane where you see a very slight curvature when you're high enough. Pardon me. So that uh, that whole issue, that whole question, then um, becomes uh, more complicated by the fact that because people can reject their senses, they can both believe that the world is round and not flat, and also believe that gods exist without evidence. Right? So the very rejection of sensual evidence that makes science possible also makes religion probable, right? I mean, this is the, this is the challenge of the species, so to speak. This is why philosophy is, is the most essential science. So just because we can reject our senses and say the sun and the moon are the same size, the stars, that we, we, uh, we rotate around the sun and the stars don't rotate around us and the sun is another star and all those sort of basic things that took human beings tens of thousands of years to figure out, the of course they're only basic because somebody figured them out for me right? <laughs> so apologies to all the dead people who helped figure that out probably way smarter than I am but um, because we have the capacity to reject sensual evidence we also have the capacity 
to reject a lack of evidence. Boy, there's a, <laughs> there's a horrible sentence. I apologize. I'm sure you get the idea, though, right? Uh, science and religion, they have the same root, which is the rejection of evidence. The re rejection of direct sensual evidence, right? That both allows us to understand that the world is, is round and also it allows us to, uh, gives us a justification to imagine that uh, gods and devils and so on uh, all exist. And that, of course, creates some great challenges, which I think, where are we at now? Ooh, 36 minutes. I think we will get to those this afternoon. This is not going to be a single podcast uh, talking about the history of religion. But next, I'd like to talk about um, the, um, the sort of specific and more immediate um, uh, provocations for religious mindsets uh, and also talk about uh, some evolutionary ways in which religious ideas grow and change. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I will talk to you soon. And, uh, ooh, thank you for my donations yesterday. I look forward to more. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much.